Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I think I'm not wrong. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the roof. Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. I'll, I'll wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just, just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who, who, whose life would be... I'd harm someone each time I'd kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards, but then that impulse to do it again to come back even stronger. Bulgarian-born Nikolai the Russian Radov was a nasty piece of work whose hobbies included extortion, blackmail and armed robbery. He had a well-deserved reputation for viciousness and brutality, Fortunately for the rest of the world, this awful, awful rapist, murderer and career criminal would die the way he lived. In August 1995, Mark Winger shot a man named Roger Harrington twice in the head. Mark said he'd heard a noise and come upstairs to find Roger beating his beloved wife Donna Winger to death with a hammer. After Roger's death, investigators soon determined that Mark had acted in self-defence. Sounds like a pretty straightforward case, doesn't it? It does. But I'm sure there's more. Mm. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. And if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our rambunctious and somewhat feral early stuff. (laughs) And levels above $5 receive three stickers and handmade Barney badges. And they also go into the running for our monthly giveaways of free merch. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. This case was requested by Kate Meehan for her friend Rose, who would have been 100 this year. So happy birthday, Rose. Happy birthday, Rose. Mark and Donna Winger seemed like the perfect couple. And the fact I just said that means things are not going to turn out well for them. Oh, no, they're Mm, fucked. Oh, yeah. 31-year-old Mark was a nuclear engineer and the cousin of actor Deborah Winger. And 28-year-old Donna was an operating room technician whose compassion for her patients made her very good at her job. 
They were an absolutely adorable model couple, Donna's mother Sarah Jane Drescher gushed. Sarah Jane was so thrilled when Mark proposed to Donna in July 1988 that she insisted on announcing their engagement in the New York Times. Fancy. It is a fancy paper. The wingers always wanted to have kids and were devastated to learn, after years of unsuccessfully trying, that Donna was infertile. In June 1995, Donna and Mark were thrilled to adopt a baby girl who they named Bailey. Ah, after the Irish cream. Yeah, maybe that's why. I doubt it, but yeah, maybe. Mm. I like to name my kids after booze. Yeah, really? Is that um, why they're called... (laughs) Benson and Hedges. Actually, no, I missed the boat on that one, didn't I? (laughs) (laughs) You really did. Donna was ecstatic about becoming a mother. 48 Hours did an episode about this case called Invitation to a Murder. In it, they play home videos showing Mark, Donna, both sets of grandparents and Donna's best friend Deanne all doting over the beautiful baby girl. Three months after the adoption, Donna took Bailey to Florida to spend time with her grandparents, Sarah Jane and Ira. After a family visit of basking in the glow of the new bub, Donna and Bailey flew back to St. Louis and took a shuttle back home to Springfield from the airport. Does that mean he works with Homer at the Springfield power plant? Oh, because Mark's actually a nuclear engineer and they live in Springfield. Wow. Well, yeah, I think it does mean that. Mm. The driver of the van was a man named Roger Harrington. He'd been working for the BART Transportation Company for six months and was a member of the Trinity Church of the Nazarene in Springfield. What transportation company was that? It was the BART Transportation Company in, in Springfield. Oh, wow, cowbunga. <laughs> yeah, eat my shorts. But Roger had some mental health issues, which made the one and a half hour drive from the airport quite harrowing for Donna. Mark Winger told 48 Hours that the guy scared her. He said things about killing people, setting car bombs, mutilating people. He was telling Donna that sometimes when he drives, this godlike character would come to him and pull him out of his body and he'd be flying above the trees. That's not the way to drive a van. No, no. Like, it it would be pretty freaky if the driver was saying this to you. It would be. Mm. Despite enduring Roger's frightening monologue and his speeding, Donna and the baby made it home in one piece. Donna was traumatised by the ride and documented the experience by writing down everything that had happened. Mark called the BART Transportation Company and complained about Roger to his boss. Don't have a cow. That's what his boss said. Six days after Donna's hair-curling ride from the airport, Mark said he was running on his treadmill in the basement when he heard a commotion upstairs. He told 48 Hours... Instantly, I knew that wasn't right at all. I just grabbed my gun and started going down the hall. Mark said when he got into the dining room, he saw Donna on the floor with Roger Harrington standing over her, hitting her in the head with a hammer. He said he aimed his gun at Roger and shot him twice in the head. When the police and paramedics arrived at the winger's house, both Donna and Roger were barely alive, but baby Bailey was unharmed in a bedroom. So don't worry, the bub's safe. Irish cream. Officer Dave Barringer got out his Polaroid camera and took pictures of where their bodies were lying before the two were rushed to hospital. Of the crime scene, Detective Charlie Cox said, I've been in crime scene work for a long time and there's been very few that I've had that was as severe and as bloody as this one was. It was a nasty scene. Whoa. According to 48 Hours, Mark told the detectives that the hammer was left out by Donna as a reminder to hang a hat rack. Who even has hat racks anymore? But according to Forensic Files, it was a picture that she wanted him to hang. Either way, he said that the hammer was in the dining room 
and there was some hammering of inanimate objects to be done. Mark asked Detective Cox who the man he'd shot was and if his name was Roger. Detective Cox informed him that he'd shot Roger Harrington. Mark told Detective Cox the details of Donna's freaky-deaky ride home from the airport with Roger several days earlier. Mark also gave Detective Cox and his partner Doug Williamson a detailed statement saying that Donna was on her knees with Roger above her pummeling her head in with the hammer when he shot him. Mark said Roger had fallen backwards away from Donna, so they ended up lying on the floor with their heads facing in opposite directions. Detective Cox's initial impression of the crime scene supported Mark's version of events. The fact that Roger had a history of suffering from delusions and had received psychiatric treatment also seemed to fit with Mark's story. Even more damningly, Roger had been arrested by Detective Cox before for a domestic violence attack on his own wife. Mark has said that at this point he was convinced he'd be going to prison for shooting Roger, but this couldn't have been further from the truth. The police had pretty much cleared him on the spot. Not only did they think he wasn't a murderer, but they also considered him a hero for trying to save his wife from her crazed attacker. Hospital staff worked diligently to save Roger and Donna's lives, but he died soon after getting to the hospital. Donna died a few minutes later, and neither of them had regained consciousness after the incident. Forensic pathologist Dr Travis Hindman later testified that the cause of Roger Harrington's death was brain trauma due to the passage of bullets through the brain due to gunshot wounds to the left side of the head. He stated that Donna's death was caused by brain trauma due to multiple narrow surface blunt force injuries to the head compatible with a hammer. Donna's mother and stepfather were utterly heartbroken by her murder and they felt terrible for Mark. Not only had he lost his wife, but he'd also had to kill a man. Sarah Jane and Ira rushed to their son-in-law's side to support him and their granddaughter. Two days after their deaths, the Sangamon County State's attorney ruled the killing of Roger Harrington a justifiable homicide, and a coroner's jury ruled soon after that Donna Winger was killed by Roger. There was an outpouring of support for Mark in his Springfield community. Public opinion heralded him as a devoted family man whose life had been ruined by a crazy murderer. The local press devoted many column inches talking up what a hero he was. But Roger Harrington's family wasn't buying into any of that. His mother, father and sister firmly believed that Roger would never kill anyone. They just couldn't accept he'd done what he was being accused of and felt like social pariahs after burying Roger as a murderer. Yeah, they were very frowned upon in the community. What a horrible thing to uh, go through. Oh, God, yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, it'd be a real mindfuck because they'd be wondering if they didn't believe it was true just because they were close to him or if their instincts were more sound than that. Like, it would be hard to know why you were feeling what you were feeling. You'd be second-guessing yourself. Constantly. Hmm. Unbeknownst to the Harringtons, Detective Doug Williamson also had his doubts about the crime scene. He wondered why Donna would even open the door to Roger after her traumatic experience with him only six days earlier. And there was no forced entry. So she had to have let him in. He also wondered why Roger parked right out the front of the winger's house, but there was something else that caused him even more alarm. Inside Roger's car, Detective Williamson said, I saw that there was a note on the front seat. It had Mark Winger's name, his address and 4.30pm written on it. Now Mark said he didn't know Roger, he'd never met him and he denied that he'd set up an appointment with him when the note the detectives found strongly implied otherwise. 
Detective Williamson wanted to investigate the case further, but his superiors refused to let him do it. Hell, even his own partner, Detective Cox, didn't think he had a point. Well, not at first, anyway. Detective Cox eventually started to become suspicious when Mark made a point of poking around at the police station. A few months after the murder, he went in to ask for his gun back. Cox said, I released the gun back to Mark and we sat and talked for about half an hour. He was wanting to know how the case was going. As far as I was concerned, he should have just accepted it was closed. He's trying to insert himself into the investigation. That's always suspicious, isn't it? It really is. You know, asking mm. questions, trying to see if they have any suspicions. Yeah. Gives them suspicions. That's right. Mark came into the station again several months later to bizarrely announce that he was getting remarried to his daughter's new young blonde nanny, Rebecca Handerty. Mark had hired Rebecca five months after Donna's murder and, well, I guess romance was in the air. Before the two were married, Mark turned his back on his Jewish roots, welcomed Jesus into his heart and was baptised as a Christian, like Rebecca. Mark's unusual behaviour led Detective Cox to believe that maybe Detective Williamson had a point after all. He ruminated over the issues with the case, including the note in Roger's car. Concerned that Mark had pulled a fast one and outsmarted the cops, Cox also wanted the case reopened. Detective Cox told 48 Hours, The bosses said, no way. We're not going to open a case of this magnitude with your gut feeling and embarrass the department and embarrass Mr Winger. Rebecca, Mark's new wife, adopted he and Donna's daughter Bailey and they had three more children together over the next three years. Oh, that's quick. Yeah, I know. Eh, Keep her knocked up and raising kids. Maybe she won't ever think to suspect you of being a murderer. Hmm. Mark filed a wrongful death suit against Roger Harrington's employer, Bart Transportation Company, hoping to make several million dollars. He also collected $200,000 from Donna's life insurance policy. Ka-ching! Oh. But that fishy smell of fishiness wasn't going away. Much like your ridiculously strong aftershave, Barney. I did put on a little bit too much this morning. Yes, Sorry about it's that. Really, it's, it's all I can smell forever now. After everyone had assumed this case was closed for good, a surprise witness came forward and cracked it wide open. The three and a half years following Donna's death had not been kind to her best friend, Deanne Schultz. Deanne had been keeping a dark secret and it was making her sick. Deanne came forward and told police that she'd been having an affair with Mark Winger at the time of Donna's murder. Well, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Everybody? No, no, no one. Because, no, no, because they'd give you the shits. Nobody had seen this revelation coming. Deanne said the affair had started a month before Donna's murder and continued for months afterwards until Mark unceremoniously dumped her. Deanne had firmly believed that she and Mark would get married, but instead he left her for the young blonde babysitter. Ah, it's a story as old as time. It really is. I think it was in the Bible. Lots of pornos start that way. Yeah, that's true. As if this scandal wasn't enough already, she also revealed that Mark wanted to get out of his marriage so badly that he'd talked to her about killing Donna. She said he mentioned that it would be easier if Donna just died. Deanne said Mark even tried to convince her to be a part of it, saying that he would be out of town and he mentioned me coming and finding Donna. That was the gist of it. And Deanne wasn't done dropping truth bombs. She told police that Mark had talked about the van driver Roger Harrington. Detective Williamson stated, according to Deanne Schultz, he told her he had to figure out a way to get him into the house. 
At the time, Deanne says she didn't take Mark's comments seriously, but as the years passed, it preyed on her conscience. She became incredibly depressed, eventually suffering a breakdown, trying to commit suicide and being admitted to a mental hospital where she was given electroshock therapy. When questioned about it, Mark Winger admitted to police that he'd had an affair with Deanne, but he denied everything else she said, claiming that she was just a woman scorned. While examining the old case files, detectives found another surprise. I love that show, Case Files. The three Polaroids taken of the crime scene by Officer Barringer. Detective Cox said he hadn't seen the photos in 1995 because he didn't know they even existed. They were completely overlooked because the case was closed just pretty much instantly. They had their blinkers on. They're like, that guy did that and then Mark did the right thing. The end. Tunnel vision. Not a good idea. That was it. Tunnel vision. Not a good idea in law enforcement. Not a good idea in a lot of things, but particularly not homicide investigations. No, Tara. Mm Mm-hmm. The Polaroids were taken before Donna and Roger were rushed to hospital, but they were never shown to investigators, which sounds like shitty police work. When the detectives eventually saw the photos, their minds were blown. Detective Williamson told 48 Hours it was a smoking gun, Roger Harrington's body. The placement of that body in that photo blew Mark's story out of the water. It was over. Roger Harrington's head and feet were in the opposite way of what Mark had told us had happened. So they were like, ah, his story can't possibly be true by the way these bodies are located. Police believe that Mark Winger began plotting the murders soon after Donna's disturbing ride home from St. Louis with Roger. After Deanne Schultz came forward, it took the authorities years to ensure that they had a strong enough case against Mark Winger. Almost seven years after Donna and Roger's murders, Mark finally went on trial. Donna's folks Sarah Jane and Ira Drescher came to the trial, knowing the evidence against Mark was pretty significant, but still hoping that he was innocent because they'd considered him a trusted part of their family for so many years. Like the alternative was kind of unbearable for them to consider. The prosecution team, led by John Schmidt, said Mark Winger had been lying from the very beginning, even during his 911 call when he told the operator he didn't know who the man that he'd shot was. They said Mark had clearly invited Roger to his house, and there were other issues. During the 911 call, Mark told the operator that Roger had a bullet in his head, but by the time the police arrived, Roger had two bullets in his head. Mark's next-door neighbour, who heard the two gunshots, said they had come five minutes apart. So it's believed that while Mark was talking to the 911 operator, he realised Roger was still alive. You can actually kind of hear him in the background groaning. So he ended the call and he shot Roger in the head again just to make sure he was dead. Wow. Yeah. Do you reckon we should um, have a listen to Mark's impassioned 911 call just so everyone can hear what a great actor he is? Sure. Yeah.
Yes! Yes! This is the police department. We've got officers en route. I need to know what's going on there. My wife is dying on the floor! Okay, is she still alive? I think so! Okay, we've got ambulance en route and we've got police officers en route. Where is the gun? I left it on the table. It's on the table. It's on the table. Please, okay. God, please come here. We've got people on the way. Okay. Who, who is this man? I don't, I don't know who he is. He's still inside the house? Yes, he's laying on the floor. Okay, you I gotta hold my wife. I gotta get to my wife. Okay, are you Mark Winger? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Okay, and your wife is Donna? Yes, she is. When did the man come here? I, I know, a few minutes ago. Wait, I gotta get to my wife. Please, just let me get to my wife. I won't hang up, okay? Okay, we've got officers in route. Okay, my door's open. Okay. Okay. That's pretty compelling stuff. Yeah, yeah. Look, he he uh, he was able to convince a lot of people, but uh, now we know that um, I've got to go. My baby's crying is actually code for I've got to go and shoot this guy in the head again. Because he's groaning while he's mm, on the first call. Yeah, and he's worried that he might pull through. Yeah. So yeah, someone's been doing some acting workshops. Ray Duffy, who owned the BART transportation company that Roger worked for, testified that Mark Winger called to complain about the way Roger behaved during the ride he gave Donna from the airport. Duffy was surprised that Mark Winger wanted to talk directly to Roger, saying usually when people have a complaint, they just call the office. They don't go like, I really want to talk to that guy I'm complaining about. It's not a thing. Yeah, no, you don't give them a serve. You're hoping the boss will give them a serve, exactly. you know? Exactly. Duffy said that Roger was open to talking to Mark. He said, I explained to him that Mr. Winger wanted to talk with him and he said, that's fine, give him my number and have him call me. Mark called Roger Harrington and set up an appointment for 4.30. Roger wrote Mark's name, address and the time of the appointment on a piece of paper that, he, that was found in his car. Mark thought that he'd planned the perfect murders, but he didn't count on Roger having this piece of paper. Nor did the arrogant killer and shitful husband expect his own lies would bring him undone. Detective Williamson said, if Mark would have told us that there was a meeting and the guy went berserk in the house, this case would probably still be closed. It would be done, but he didn't. When Roger entered the winger's house, he was carrying a takeaway coffee and a packet of cigarettes, but no weapon. Detective Williamson noted, Roger Harrington had a tire iron fashioned as a weapon in his car. If he was going to bludgeon someone, he had a weapon in his car, yet he chose a weapon from inside the house that he would have had no idea was there. Key testimony in the case also came from Tom Bevel, a forensic pathologist and blood splatter expert, much like yourself, Barney. He reported to Springfield Police that the blood splatter evidence in the case pointed to a staged domestic homicide by the husband. Bevel said he believed Mark Winger ordered Roger to his knees and shot him in the head, then used the hammer to murder Donna when she came to see what was happening. According to the analysis by Bevel, the physical evidence in the case and Roger's actions were not consistent with Mark's statements to police. For example, none of Donna's blood was found on Roger's clothes, but her blood was splattered on the walls, the ceiling, and Mark's clothing. Yeah. Proving that it was him that had attacked her. I mean, splatter. Yeah, from a hammer attack. You've got to be in the line of the splatter to get the splatter. Well, that's right. Also, according to Bevel, Roger's head wounds didn't match Mark's version of events. Mark claimed he fired at Roger from the hallway as Roger beat Donna. But the bullet path showed that Roger was shot from above while kneeling and then shot again in the forehead after he'd fallen to the ground. Surely they must have picked this up. They could have picked this up the first time around. They could have. If they'd even looked at it. But they were just so blinkered. They were like, oh, yeah, this is what happened. 
So, you know, this guy, yeah. guy came in, he killed her, and then that guy killed him. Like, whoa, whoa shit. Mm. The end. Deanne Schultz was given immunity for testifying that Mark had talked about murdering Donna. But Mark's defence team claimed she was unreliable and unstable as she'd attempted suicide four times and had received electroshock therapy. In May 2002, after 13 hours of deliberation, the jury convicted Mark Winger of the first-degree murders of Donna Winger and Roger Harrington, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Although the defence had tried to paint Deanne Schultz as unreliable due to her past psychological issues, the jurors actually thought that these issues made her more credible because they, they could see the toll that it had taken on her over the years. They found her quite genuine yeah. and authentic. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mark Winger didn't testify in court, but he did give us this laughable nugget of a quote. He said, Donna must be turning over in her grave knowing what they've done to me. Yeah, turning over with joy, Mark, you dipshit. Seriously, in the interviews that I've watched with this self-pitying little prick, he does that thing where he screws up his face and rubs his eyes and pretends to cry, but there's no tears. Yeah. Like in interviews um, when people are talking about things like this and they're actually really upset, they're generally sort of trying not to cry, but the tears just sort of come out. That's right. They certainly don't like sit there looking like they're trying to squeeze out a poo and like, I'm so <laughs> you know, it's just—it's quite ridiculous. It's not the first case. There's there's lots of um, men who kill their their wives and families who do this fake cry thing. You can see it from a mile away. There's just not a hint of yeah. moisture there. Crocodile tears. Yeah, are well, quite, are quite dry. Well, yeah. Don't use them as a lubricant. That's no. I can there's say. a lesson there. Mm-hmm. Roger Harrington's family were relieved to finally have their murdered son exonerated. Oh, you would. Yeah, and also, you know, the fact that they couldn't believe he'd done it. They were, they were proven correct. He didn't do it. Yeah, and Donna's parents too, having trusted... Um, oh, yeah. it was The whole thing was just like... When you really trust somebody and they do something to, to, to break that trust, you kind of think, well... Is anything? Yeah, yeah. It shakes your whole worldview. It shakes your whole worldview. Yeah. Have I got all this other stuff wrong as well? Yeah. Do I just have like no spidey sense or, or instincts when it comes to what's going on? Mm. Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying there. So this really should be the end of the story, shouldn't it? Well, let's see what else happens to this <laughs> sociopath. Yeah. Okay. Well, in 2005, an inmate at the prison in Pontiac where Mark was doing time came forward and said that Mark tried to solicit him to organise some murders. Some murders. Murders. Oh, yeah. He was he was just racking them up. The proposed victims were Deanne Schultz and a well-to-do childhood friend of Mark's, Jeff Gelman, who he, he was pissed at him for not paying his bail earlier. Oh, yeah, he was arrested and went straight to jail. He yeah, couldn't, couldn't, for like a year before trial. Couldn't come up with a bail. No. Nah. Mark's new murder plot was so complicated that it took 19 pages of writing and hours of secretly recorded conversations to explain it. You're going to read all 19 pages yes, and absolutely. play all of those uh, I will recordings? Be, and I'll be reading them very slowly. Uh, so anyway, it was a very cunning and incredibly stupid plan. You want to know what it was? Uh, you're going to summarise. Mm-hmm. Good work. Deanne would be kidnapped and made to write and record on cassette long statements that would exonerate Mark. So she was going to say that... So he wanted her to say that uh, she'd lied in court about him wanting Donna dead and everything like that, basically, to just say that she was, I'm a dirty lying bitch. It Mark's would, great. It wouldn't have helped. 
Well, then... Even if, even if the authorities believed it, there was so much physical evidence against him. Yeah, I know, but then after she was supposed to have done this, um, she was to be murdered, which, of course, wouldn't look suspicious at all either, mm. would it? Oh, my God. So he also had all these, like, strict guidelines about how Deanne's fingerprints needed to be on the tape cassettes and the letters and envelopes um, and her saliva had to be used on the stamps and everything. Like, he was thinking about it. His plan for his rich old mate, Jeff Gelman, was for someone to kidnap him and hold him ransom. They were to then kill Jeff and his whole family after the ransom was paid and use the ransom money to pay for the murders of the Gelman family and Deanne. But wait, there's more. Mark also wanted his former father-in-law, Ira Drescher, knocked too. You know, if there was like enough ransom money left to pay for it. Oh, kill oh, everybody. Can, yeah, kill them all. If you can just squeeze in one more, that'd be rad. In June 2007, Mark Winger stood trial in Pontiac, Illinois. Here he told some more porcupines to the jury, claiming that the whole thing was just a fantasy he had and he never planned to go through with it. This time the jury took less than three hours to convict Mark Winger of soliciting murder and sentenced him to another 35 years to go along with his whole entire life sentence. Ira Drescher made sure to attend Mark's trial. He recalled... He was chained by his hands and he was chained by his feet and I looked at him straight in the eye and I said, Mark, your miserable life is over. Go, Ira. Go, Ira. I like Ira. Mark and Donna's daughter, Bailey, was actually raised by Mark's second wife, Rebecca, along with their kids, Anna, Maggie and Ben. After the filthy truth came out about Mark, Rebecca divorced his ass and moved into state. Donna's parents, Sarah Jane and Ira, now help abused women, raising money for a charity they call Donna's Fund, which is part of the organisation Women in Distress. Their website says Donna's Fund assists domestic violence survivors with essentials for their new life, such as rent, utility deposits, furniture and items for their children. With your support, we can continue to give families in need the fresh start they deserve. So thanks again, Kate, for suggesting we cover this story. I hope you enjoyed it and Rose too if you get murder podcasts in the afterlife. Kate said when she told her elderly friend Rose about Mark Winger, Rose exclaimed, what a dumb shit. We're definitely with you on that one, Rose. Yeah, you're not wrong, Rose. Yeah, he's an absolute Mm. dumb shit. What an evil, evil person. Yeah. Like not only did he murder his own wife, but he set up Roger Harrington. It's a problem with sociopaths. They're really good at impersonating normal people. Yeah. Not good at pretending to cry, though. Not in this case, anyway. (laughs) No. Very bad at it. I'll give you a tip. Pull a nose nose hair out. That can always get a tear. I don't know how I could get a nose hair out. What am I using to pull it out? Your fingernails? They're too far up. I don't have like I don't, know. I don't have creeper ones that fall down my oh, face like God. spider's legs. Do I have to walk you through this? Get a <laughs> pair of tweezers, for fuck's sake. Right, so I'm wanting to cry in my prison interview. I somehow get a pair of tweezers in front of the rolling 48 hours cameras and pull out a nose You do it hair. just beforehand. You say, look over there, and then you quickly pull it out. <laughs> and then when they look back, you're crying. That's the perfect plan. Yeah, that's, that's amazing, Barney. Um, thanks for the advice. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Vice. All right, Barney. I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Nikolai Radev was born on January 29th in 1959 in Bulgaria. Since 1946, Bulgaria was a one-party socialist state and part of the Soviet-led Eastern Bloc. It would not see democratic rule until after the revolutions of 1989. According to my historical research, Bulgaria has a rich heritage of traditional dance, music, costumes and crafts, but during its Soviet-controlled time, it suffered mass unemployment, poverty and organised crime, all tightly controlled by its feared secret police. It wasn't fun. Are you sure? Sounds like a laugh riot. This is where Nikolai Radev grew up. Not much is known about his early days, but what we do know is that in this shitty environment, he fought hard to survive and started his criminal career young. Nikolai was rolling Western tourists for their wallets by the tender age of 10. Nikolai was a muscly little fucker and competed in wrestling, Bulgaria's national sport. He was very good at it. I believe you. Bigger is better, and Nikolai was recruited by local organised crime as a standover man. It was common for Russian crime gangs to use wrestlers, boxers and weightlifters as hired goons. And Nikolai quite enjoyed punching dudes. By the age of 20, he had several convictions for violent assaults. By the end of the 70s, Nikolai had served hard time in Bulgarian and Turkish prisons. Here he suffered shivings, rapes and torture. Upon release in 1980, Nikolai, now covered in prison tats, managed to flee Bulgaria and immigrate to Australia as a refugee. How does that even happen? Nikolai settled in the beautiful harbour city of Melbourne. <laughs> Do you mean Sydney? No, I mean Melbourne. Oh, okay. It's, Melbourne's lovely. It's, it's a harbour city, is it? We live in Melbourne. It's lovely. Where's the water, Barney? There's a harbour. It's nowhere near us, though, is it? No. Now, Tara, fucked if I know how his refugee status got approved and how they didn't look at his extensive violent criminal record, but let's just say I suspect there was some corruption involved. Mm-hmm. One thing I do know is that Nikolai would have seen Australia as a soft target, a place ready to be exploited. Nikolai did not want to go back to dreary Bulgaria, but he did want to do a spot of crime. Mm-hmm. However, he knew if he got pinched, he would be deported lickety-split. His answer was to steal the identity of his Eastern European neighbour, Ivan Solokov. Solokov was a hard-working dude, an honest immigrant who worked in the Holden car factory. One day, no one knew where he was. He didn't turn up for work. Solokov just vanished. After stealing Solokov's identity, Nikolai went on a crime spree and was busted a few times, but all convictions were recorded in Solokov's name and not Nikolai's. The weird thing is, police had Ivan Solokov's fingerprints on file, but after he disappeared, Solokov's fingerprints were replaced by Nikolai's. How does that even happen? I think some money might have changed hands. Uh. Ivan Solokov's body was never found. Solokov's disappearance was only investigated years later when a senior detective named Ben Archibald began noticing Nikolai's criminal capers. But more on Ben Archibald later. Now, as well as stealing Solokov's name, Nikolai also began calling himself by his given name. What I mean by that is the name he gave himself. Oh. He began insisting people call him Nick the Russian. 
Nikolai was of Bulgarian descent, but、mm-hmm. he felt the tag the Russian was more badass. <laughs> So yeah, I'm not going to call him that, Tara. Nah, don't. Nikolai told everyone he was a connected Russian gangster. He wasn't, <laughs> but he did adopt their uber violent ways. When Nikolai would threaten someone, he would threaten to go after their entire family. Now, as we know, career criminals have a code: never go after family, women, children, or old people. Clown Dick Nikolai <laughs> gave no fucks. Nikolai. <laughs> yes, he did have a clown dick. Nikolai the Prussian. <laughs> By 1985, Nikolai had a vile and vicious reputation. He was not somebody to trifle with. One night, Nikolai went to visit a man he reckoned owed him a few thousand dollars for drugs he'd sold for him. The poor bloke didn't have the cash, so Nikolai put a gun to his head, made him take his clothes off, and in front of his wife and young children, Nikolai sodomized him. Jesus Christ. Told you he wasn't nice. Does he work for one of the major banks? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know it's kind of what they do. That is really what they do. He didn't just like to intimidate and brutalize his victims. This perverse, nasty, vile fucker loved a spot of humiliation as well. Just like the major banks. Yeah, yeah. His、uh, his penis is a weapon. In 1987, Nikolai got five years jail for his role in a plan to explode a 7-11. Why did he want to do that?、Uh, oh, was the slushy machine broken? Yes,、oh, hate that. I get it. You see, Tara, Nikolai spent a fair amount of time in prison. Short sentences, not under his own name, of course. He'd been done for armed robbery, blackmail, and some drug and firearms offences. It didn't bother him. These Australian prisons were soft and like country clubs to him.、Mm. It's like a day spa. Well, yeah, probably, and you know, he could get up to some of his hobbies in there. Well, that's right.、Mm. Turkish businessman Sadat Salen was in Loden Prison in Central Victoria on fraud charges when he unfortunately met Arsal Nikolai and his goon sidekick Sam Zayet in the exercise yard. Nikolai knew his victimology well and saw Salen as a pigeon-chested weakling who was about to be eaten alive. Nikolai offered him protection, but it came at a cost. After a deal was made, Nikolai announced to the prison population, "Lay off the little fellow." During his time in the clink, Nikolai and his gang managed to extort over two hundred thousand dollars out of poor Salen. Upon release, Salen tried to put the whole bad experience behind him. He actually thought he didn't need protection anymore and would be free of the cruel and sadistic clutches of Nikolai. Salen was wrong.、Mm. Shortly after being paroled, Salen received a late-night phone call from Nikolai. He told Salen that he needed to see him urgently and to come to room seven one nine at the Stamford Plaza Hotel in Melbourne. Nikolai was not a man you say no to. As soon as Salen walked in the door, he was punched hard in the face by one of Nikolai's goons. Nikolai was at a desk doing lines of cocaine while Salen got punched some more. He told Salen, "It's time we conclude our business. This is what you owe me." Nikolai held up a napkin. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars was written on it. Oh wow! I, I like that he wrote it on a napkin. Showmanship. It makes it real. Yeah, yeah. Like, see, it's in writing. Here is your bill. <laughs> Did he always write his bills on napkins? Oh yeah. Interesting choice. Salem was confused and told Nikolai he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. <laughs> I probably didn't say it like that. I'm、oh, sorry,、no. sir. I'm not sure. Nikolai、yes. said, "It is exit fee." And nodded to his henchman, who started laying into Salen again. For the next several hours, Salen was punched, kicked, and tortured. 
Eventually, Salem was made to give Nikolai a down payment of $20,000. He was told the balance of $230,000 was due in a week. Just to show he was serious, a severely beaten Salem was dangled off a seven-story balcony of the hotel. Nikolai told him, Salem, I am very willing to kill you. One week, little man, understand? Salem had barely survived the horrific torture. In genuine fear of his life, the first thing he did was buy a gun. When Nikolai arrived to collect his cash a week later, Salem was waiting with gun in hand. He opened fire. Despite Nikolai standing three feet away, Salem missed. Nikolai thought, fuck this shit, and he hightailed it out of there. But as Omar Little says in The Wire, you come at the king, you best not miss. Oh, yeah. Salem knew Nikolai would be back with more firepower and more goons. Salem knew there was no way he could raise that kind of cash. Taking a shot at Nikolai had brought him time, but it also brought the police into the picture. The cops promised Salem protection for him and his family. But Salem was so shit-scared he defrauded the Australian tax department of $2.5 million and pissed off back to Turkey on a false passport. Once there, he told Australian authorities he would not come back to Australia until Nikolai Radov was in the ground. Okay, so did he? So he defrauded them of all that money. Did he decide to flee the country rather than giving the money to Nikolai because he just knew he would keep squeezing him for more money? That's right. Okay, he yep. would just keep coming back for more. Yeah, he doesn't sound like someone who knows when to quit. None of this bothered Nikolai. He had his fingers in many pies and the pies were not into it. Mm, he wouldn't care. In 1998, Les Papadopoulos was at his Northcote home when Nikolai and two other men bound and gagged his parents, wife and five-year-old daughter. Then they tossed his house. After finding nothing of real value, Nikolai put a gun to the head of the terrified five-year-old girl and told Papadopoulos some money or your daughter. Papadopoulos paid him. Later that year, he kidnapped a university science student and made him cook speed for him. I hope he picked someone who was actually good at the subject, not someone who was failing. With seemingly no repercussions, Nikolai was becoming bolder and bolder and his reputation for his crazy, brutal and perverse methods only grew. He must have thought to himself, Australia really is the lucky country. Oh, well, not for the people he victimises. Nikolai based his image, like so many wannabe gangsters, on Tony Montana from the film Scarface. How many times have we heard this? (laughs) All of these Aussie wannabe gangsters, they they all love Scarface. Uh, It's kind of like what got them into it in a lot of ways. He wore white suits, smoked expensive Cuban cigars and drank cognac in big fancy glasses. Of course he did. He even had his apartment adorned with big trashy frame posters of Scarface. (laughs) But was Nikolai satisfied? No, Tara, he wasn't. What use is it being king if you don't have someone to share it with? The king needed a queen. Oh, dear. In this country, you've got to make the money first. (laughs) Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the women. The women. These were the words that Nikolai lived by. Clown Dick Nikolai was a charming motherfucker too, and for some reason women liked him, but he felt no love for them. They were just conquest to him. But now the psycho-Bulgarian needed something else from a woman, citizenship. Sylvia Bruno was a 16-year-old hairdresser from a strict Italian family. Oh, he's going to go after a teenage girl? She was an innocent with no idea what she was in for. Nikolai showered her with gifts and pretty much annoyed her until she agreed to go out with him. 
And they say romance is dead. Yeah, It was a whirlwind romance, Tara. Uh Poor Sylvia and Nikolai tied the knot after only three months. It started out all right with Nikolai playing the part of a loving husband, but it was all bullshit and it didn't take long before Sylvia was enduring a beating every other night. Nikolai worked in his in-law's fish and chip shop in Doveton for six months. (laughs) That's absurd. Was he wearing his white suit? Did he say things like, would you like normal salt, chicken salt, or anal rope? <laughs> I don't think they did very well with him there. I don't no. think he would be good at this job. Well, after that, he opened his own pizza shop in Dandenong. And that um, didn't go well, too. I'm just surprised he even bothered having a facade. That only lasted about a year before going belly up. Oh, is everyone too scared to go in there? <laughs> well, it didn't, it, it didn't bother the Bulgarian bruiser. He knew better ways to make bank. Mm, that's for sure. Sylvia would go on to suffer years of torture and abuse at the hands of Nikolai. He threatened Sylvia that if she left him, he would hurt her and her family. I think he probably meant it. Sylvia told media years later, he had no fear and no shame. It was just a power thing for him. He wanted to be like El Pacino in Scarface. Jesus Christ. He told me later that he married me just to get Australian citizenship. Mm. Having a child did not fix things. It just gave him someone else to torment. Oh, no. Nikolai even took to hiding his guns in the crib of his baby daughter. Nikolai got his citizenship from marrying Sylvia, which meant he could escape deportation if he got pinched. But now he was on the cops' radar. On August 16th, 1998, two coppers, Victorian police officers, Sergeant Gary Silk and Senior Constable Rodney Miller were shot dead in Cochrane's Road, Moorabbin, just near Nikolai's home. As a known violent offender who everyone knew loathed police, he was immediately thought of as a suspect. The police needed to be careful as they knew Nikolai always carried a gun. They began an investigation into his blackmail, drug dealing and extortion rackets. As it turned out, Nikolai wasn't good for the murders, but Detective Ben Archibald, who I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. kept him under investigation. The murders of Officer Gary Silk and Rodney Miller came to a head on September 24, 2001 when Bandali Debs and Jason Roberts were arrested and charged for the killings, as well as 13 other charges of armed robbery. They were found guilty of the murders and sentenced to life imprisonment. Both are currently serving their sentence at maximum security Victorian prisons. Meanwhile, Nikolai was under constant police surveillance. Detective Archibald also had his phone tapped. After enough evidence was gathered, police were ready to pounce and pick up Nikolai. Problem was, Nikolai had shook his tail and was on the lam. He was bouncing from hotel to hotel with the police just missing him by minutes. Police finally got a bead on Nikolai. The cops knew where he was going so they lay in wait for him. After a tense standoff with a dozen armed special operations police, with Nikolai waving a gun at police with a spotlight shining in his eyes, the Russian was disarmed and hauled in. And I've got to tell you, Tara, it was not pretty. He didn't go quietly? No. Nikolai fought like a demon. He turned his surly up to 11, punched, kicked and scratched and spat on police during his arrest, all while shouting expletives that would even make you blush. Oh, my goodness. If it would make me blush, imagine how much it would make the I'm not a prude but people blush. They would actually die of it. Oh, yeah, their heads would explode. (laughs) After he was physically restrained and put in handcuffs, a bag was placed over his head. Was it a paper bag? Did they draw a happy face on it? (laughs) (laughs) And he kept swearing. (laughs) This happy, grinning paper bag head. 
Back at St Kilda Road Police Complex, Detective Ben Archibald was given the task to interview Nikolai, who had not calmed the fuck down in the slightest. Right. As soon as Archibald entered the room, Nikolai spat blood in his face. He screamed he was a dog and a weak cunt and that he would fuck him up and kill him and his entire family. But then everything changed. Detective Ben Archibald confronted Nikolai about the murder of Ivan Solikov, Nikolai's neighbour who years ago he had killed to steal his identity. Nikolai went as pale as an albino ghost covered in flour in a snowstorm. (laughs) Nikolai didn't say another word during the interview. Despite Nikolai being charged with extortion and blackmail, amongst other charges, Archibald couldn't amass the evidence he needed to substantiate a murder charge. Within weeks, Nikolai was out on bail and back on the streets, but Nikolai had definitely had his cage rattled. Whether it was his seething hatred of police or his concern he was in the frame for a murder charge, which could lead to his deportation, Nikolai was pissed. But he has citizenship, so how's he going to get deported? They can revoke that if it's a murder charge. Oh, okay. The focus of his hatred will be directed at Detective Ben Archibald. Nikolai found a corrupt member of the Victorian police force and got Ben Archibald's home address for the bargain basement price of $30,000. With Nikolai closing in, Archibald was forced into hiding. Nikolai didn't care. He gave no fucks. No, none at all. Well, I mean, he gave some, but not consensual. Twelve. That's how many fucks he didn't give. Right. He knew he couldn't hide forever, and besides, what better way to pass the time than doing what he did best, robbing drug dealers? It was the early 2000s and Melbourne was awash with party drugs and loads of inexperienced young dealers were ripe for the plucking. Nikolai reckoned there were tons of drug dealers that owed him money. Most of the debts he made up, but one way or another, he was going to collect. Did he write them down on napkins? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, he's got uh, a system. Yeah, I've got a, like. invoices. Yeah, that's what they're called. He would set up a buy or a sell, it didn't matter, and then show up with his goons, bash them and take it all. If they gave him any grief, Nikolai would anally rape the young drug dealers. Well, he's really into doing that, isn't he? It's a power thing. Well, I mean, yeah, it always is. I guess it just becomes even clearer when he's doing it to men. But, but to be ready to do that... Well, like yeah. violence must turn him on. Well, I mean, I would imagine so because you, you know you need to um, you need to have it going on to be able to do that. Yeah. Can't fake your way through that one, can you? No, you really can't. Mm, that's really, really, really unusual. He's quite gross. disgusting, isn't he? Yeah, was he raping women too? Yes, he was. Oh, so he's like an equal employment opportunity rapist. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, we don't hear a lot of um, men being raped by people who also rape women, do we? A lot of men don't report it. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, also like Ted Bundy wasn't going around like raping men as well and killing them. It was just he just had an eye for the ladies. Well, as we know through rape statistics, a lot of women don't report rapes. It's even more so with men. Yeah, yeah, big time. Hmm. But yeah, it's probably sexual status. Oh, his poor wife. Well, it's not like these young dealers are going to go to the police and report it. No, no. Well, I was just trying to sell drugs and this guy came up. Yeah, it's not really something yeah. you, you know. <laughs> no. One day in late 2001, Nikolai got a line on his nemesis, Detective Ben Archibald. Not Ben's location, but the location of his parents, who ran a hotel in Turak. Nikolai rolled up there and found Ben's father, Peter. Nikolai cornered him and asked, Are you Ben's father? Quick-thinking Peter Archibald, who knew all about Nikolai, said, No, Ben who? Mm. Disappointed and I hope butthurt, 
Nikolai turned around and left. Later phone taps revealed that Nikolai had a hand grenade in his pocket. So he was going to explode him. Yeah, quite possibly after he did other things. Ugh. Ben Archibald, already carrying his sidearm everywhere he went, had to go further underground and his family sold their hotel. Now, if things went bad enough, Nikolai decided to hook up with a new business partner, our favourite Melbourne kingpin and fried chicken-eating motherfucker, the one and only Carl Fatboy Williams. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Now, if you're not familiar with Carl Williams, <laughs> this is what Mark Chopper Reed said, said of him. Mm-hmm. Carl was just a fat, wobbly bottom boy from bloody broad meadows. He was a fat fool, and I won't ever revise that opinion of him. See, Jason Moran put this idiot in charge of his own ecstasy chemicals and pill press. He taught this complete wombat how to fucking do it. <laughs> How's my chopper impersonation? A bit drunk, Uncle, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) Carl was also a bad judge of character. Oh, except for when he chose to marry Roberta. That's a solid solid decision. Picking Bert is a solid choice. Yeah. She's a firecracker who likes to do bad things too. Nikolai, being aggressive, narcissistic, downright contrary and difficult, was a tad bit hard to work with. Oh, I've supervised people like him before. It sucks. (laughs) He also scared the shit out of Carl. But it would be okay. Carl knew a guy. In fact, he knew a few guys that could take care of his Russian problem. It came to a head when Nikolai was continually whining about the quality of ecstasy that was coming out of Carl's pill presses. I don't like. It's not good. It's just really like... Not good. Ecstasy, like, don't get happy from it. I just don't like it. Nikolai said he wanted to meet the chef and give him some pointers. He needs to put more baking soda. Carl's a sp- <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps they could make the pills purple. I like purple. It's nice. Do they have citrus flavour? Carl suspected that Nikolai knew fuck all about making drugs. <laughs> well, Carl didn't know a hell of a lot either. <laughs> Well, Carl kind of knew that this was just a way to get to his stuff. And yeah, he was, yeah, he was and fuck probably, his shit up. He was probably just going to steal everything. Yeah, look, he he uh, he did understand people like himself to some degree, Carl, so there was a bit of awareness there. Well, Carl believed it was time to bring their business relationship to its natural conclusion. <laughs> Someone was going to get got. Yeah, yeah. On April 15th, 2003, Carl Williams asked Nikolai Radov to meet him at an address in Queen Street, Coburg for a drug deal. Nikolai drove there in his black Mercedes that he'd just paid $100,000 for a couple of weeks before. He took two of his goons with him. After he got to the house and got out of his sweet ride, he checked the time on his $20,000 watch and adjusted his Versace suit as two assassins roared up in their car and emptied two guns into Nikolai. Seven bullets took him down. Just like his hero, Tony Montana, he died in a hail of bullets. His goons ran off. When later interviewed by police, they told detectives they didn't see a thing. (laughs) Yeah. Nikolai had become just another victim of the Melbourne gangland wars. Well, I bet 16 million anuses breathed a sigh of relief that he was finally dead, huh? No one was sad, Tara. No, they wouldn't be. In fact, a lot of people were quite happy. And relieved. And a few more were quite relieved. Yes. The talk on the street was that he was killed on the orders of Carl Williams, though there were several contracts out on him and he had massed dozens of enemies. Well, yeah, I mean, he wasn't very nice, was he? Ben Archibald and his family were finally able to come out of hiding and live a normal life. 
After Ben heard the news that Nikolai was dead, he drank some champagne. <laughs> Cheers. Sylvia and her daughter were finally free from Nikolai's evil clutches. Oh, God, that's, that's lucky. Sadat Salem returned to Australia, as promised, and faced the charges for the fraud he committed. After stealing $2.5 million from the tax office just to get away from Nikolai, he was sentenced to five years. Only 30 mourners saw Nikolai off at his funeral. Being a total dickhole till the end, <laughs> Nikolai was buried in a $50,000 gold-plated coffin. Yeah, of course he was. That's where Carl saw it. He got one too. Yeah, yeah. He was so impressed. I remember this when we did our Carl Williams episode, 53, I think it was. Uh, Yeah, he was so impressed by his uh, fancy gold coffin that he was like, damn, when someone knocks me while I'm in Barwon prison, I want to be buried in one of those damn things. Nick died owing a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah, but he probably thought that they all owed him money, right? Well, that's right. Yeah, he wrote it on a napkin, so it must be true. Uh, Hooray, he's dead. I guess I can throw this napkin away. (laughs) This napkin invoice. At the time of Nikolai's murder, he was facing gun charges and two rape charges. His other crimes, say his lawyers, was his refusal to pay his legal bills. Oh, well, that would have made those sausage dogs very unhappy. (laughs) One of Nikolai's favourite quotes from Scarface was, Me. I want what's coming to me. The world and everything in it. Well, Tara, I think he certainly got what was coming to him. Damn straight. Ah. So that's the story of Nikolai Radov. Wow. The so, Bulgarian Russian. Uh, if anyone wrestler. <laughs> if, if if anyone would like us to just, you know, send you a transcript of that so you can read it to your kids at bedtime. Um, That's right. <laughs> just get in touch. <laughs> They'll be sleeping soundly after that one. Yeah. I wow. like I like dipping my toe in the Melbourne underworld. Dipping your toe, man. You bob for apples in there, full bodied. Yeah, yeah. Are you gonna have some more of it next week? I think I might. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have two questions for you, Tara. Oh, really? Two, huh? What are they? How do you like me now? And what is Aussie as? Yeah, you're all right. And Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. Woohoo! A naked and possibly drunk man has caused quite a ruckus by engaging in some rambunctious behaviour on a packed Melbourne train. Ooh. Pics or it didn't happen, right? Well, don't worry. There's video footage. So let me set the scene for you. It's a balls freezing cold Melbourne winter night. It's been raining all day. People's wet shoes and umbrellas have made the floor of the train carriage soaking wet. Now, I don't know how this happened, but the train carriage was like schoolies week on the Gold Coast. It's just packed with drunk, loud young people everywhere. I would tell them to get off my lawn. The 30-second video posted to the Lilydale Line Facebook page shows a guy in his early 20s with a mullet who has taken off all his clothes except for a pair of green socks, which I thought was a nice touch. Oh, yeah. Nudie sock man gets up from his seat while passengers loudly cheer him on and film him on their phones. He covers up his tackle with one hand... One hand, not two hands. I'd need uh, like 12 hands. You would need to hire a gigantic jumping castle hand. Um, So, yeah, he's got his junk in his hand. He gets a bit of a run-up before throwing himself dick down onto the wet floor of the carriage and doing a slip and slide for the entire length of the train on his stomach as passengers continue cheering him boisterously. 
I've seen this video. So bizarre. Yeah, they're so into it, aren't they? They really are. There's a few people just going, oh, just get me, please get me off this fucking train. Filmed it and then moved carriages. He then scampers back to the seat where he left his clothes on as wildly excited commuters give him high fives like this is the best thing that's ever happened in their lives. This is what it means to be Australian, the Lilydale line commented under the post. Other comments on the video include, this is the most Australian video I've seen all year. I love this beautiful country and everything about this video is majestic. However, Metro Trains have condemned Nudie Sockman's actions and urged passengers to report any similar behaviour. Oh, they'll report it all right. They'll report it as being Aussie ass. Nice. Yeah. Um, nice. Apparently he could, like, you know, get a big fine or it'll get a criminal record for that. So Nudie Sockman is trying to remain anonymous. Even though we've uh, seen most of him in all his glory, I, I wouldn't be able to point his junk or his uh, his naked feet out in a cop lineup. But I reckon I could do anything else. Know what his bum looks like? You know, you've seen the video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> thanks for listening, and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're really thirsty, mm-hmm. there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us uh, through our Facebook page or our group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod and at Instagram. And on Instagram, we are bloody underscore murder underscore podcast. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So, Barney, we've received some reviews lately that say that we sound like um, children's entertainers. Hello, boys and girls. Would you like to hear some stories about murder? Hey, you little stinking bastards. Come sit down here, put your hands on your heads, have a little listen to some stories about bloody, bloody murder. There'll be lots and lots of murder in this one. How many murders? I don't know. You'll have to count. So, Barney, I have officially crossed over. What do you mean? Well, I bought dog costumes for Poppy. Oh, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. I bought six of them. Oh, tell me. Tell well, me all about them. Oh, they're so cool. However, she's not really into it because she's a, she's a bit of a destroyer, not a poser. I've only managed to try two of them on her so far. And she wasn't having it with the pirate hat thing. Uh, I got a chicken suit onto her, but um, she thought that I was just going to leave her in it and then she'd be able to destroy it. So the fact that I took it off her and put it back up in a shelf, she got so upset. She's like, where's my fucking toy? You gave that to me and you've taken it off me. How dare you? Uh, What other things besides pirate and chicken? Oh, okay. Well, hang on. Just let me finish. Um, Before I get her into the others, I need to buy her a soft toy to destroy afterwards. Oh, that makes sense. So that she sense. still gets the satisfaction. Okay, so there was a, a pirate and a chicken. I uh, got a unicorn and a dinosaur. Uh, and there's also one that's kind of like, it's got a knight that sits on their back and you put the, the blanket on them and it looks like, you know, they, they're being ridden by a knight. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and I got a teddy bear one too. Yeah, what about a forensic accountant? Well, she already looks like a forensic accountant, That's if you ask true. me. That's true. But yeah, finally crossed over into dressing my dog up in costumes. What's next, I ask you? Well, I don't know. Well, you know what these store-bought uh, dog costumes are. 
Well, they're, I mean, a, they're a gateway drug to tailor-made <laughs> dog costumes. I'll be measuring her. Uh, I'll, be, I'll, I'll be getting tailors in to measure her inner thigh so they can make her some, some little frilly pants. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's, Do it. it's definitely a gateway. Do it. I don't know where it's going, but it's going to lead somewhere bloody weird like everything else. Well, exploitative photography, I hope. Well, you know that is a passion of mine. Oh. Pigs or it didn't happen. That's right. Pigs or it didn't happen. I love pigs. Yeah, me too. Uh, they're good. Eat my jaunts. Oh, they're so eat delicious. Me, eat my collard. Okay, now you get what you're not getting sick of all the people talking about just that how you're a weird pants man. You're going to lean into it, are you? Um, hey, summer's coming, man. Spring is only a day away. I'm going to be back into the fancy pants any day now. Fancy pants, Barney and sweary Tara. That's right. Yeah, we have our roles firmly defined. Yep, two cunts in a cunt pod. <laughs> Two, pu- two cunts wearing stupid pants in a cunt pod. <laughs> what does that even mean? Two cunts in a cunt pod. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like it's dry. Yeah, it's not distracting at all. <laughs> you, look, you look like a walrus trying to give a head job. <laughs> <laughs> I look like a walrus trying to give a head job. When you lean down to drink out of your drink that has a straw in it. Oh, right. Oh, don't toss her in the way of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's a constant problem oh, for you. Oh, I like my big furry moustache tickles the balls, though. <laughs> <laughs> Got to watch out for those tusks. I mean, it's, it's such a thing to worry about that Fleetwood Mac wrote a song about it. That's what it's about. Yeah, I know. Mm. Stevie told me. Yeah, that's right. Walrus porn. Well, when it when it comes down to it, everything sort of leads back to walrus porn. It does. Well, Kate knows that. Yeah, yeah. I'll make Kate Wallinger. She's really down with uh, down with the brown walruses. What is even coming out of my mouth at this point? We drank too much coffee earlier, and <laughs> we we got these milkshake sized coffees, and we're both speeding off our tits. Yeah, we thought it'd be a good idea to drink a bucket of coffee before <laughs> going on air. <laughs> I've only finished half of mine and I feel like I'm sm- I'm smelling colours, but that might just be how odorous you are. Oh, thanks. But that fishy smell of fishiness wasn't going away, much like your ridiculously strong aftershave, Barney. I did put on a little bit too much this morning. Yes, sorry it's about that. Really, it's, it's all I can smell forever now. I was guarding toast at I, the time. I feel like the smell's coming from inside my nose at this point. My son was getting dressed and the cat wanted to eat his toast. And, and then I saw it on the table next to me and I just, oh, I just put a little bit, bit of a splash of that on. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, too much. No, I, I thought you poured a bucket of it onto I yourself. I smell like a musk stick. Yeah, like a sweaty musk stick. Like yeah. the balls of a musk stick. The balls of a mustic. Yeah, we no. went into a cafe earlier, and he stunk out the whole cafe. And when they, when when they were asking if we were going to have our coffee there or takeaway, and we said takeaway, they were so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. I'm rubbish. <laughs> but at least you know that. Well, like yeah. I'm rubbish too, but I know it's okay. We're not in the dark about this shit. I know everybody knows. It's a it's yeah. A, it's like a, it's a very widely known. It is known. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Graham. Well, I mean, you can have a look up there, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's unnecessary. Yeah, maybe you should just keep reading, clown dick. Well, maybe you should take the douche out of your nipple hole and hitchhike to Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of that. I'm going to write a song about it. 
<laughs> the douche out of your nipple hole. Shake the camera. You can't. Why don't you? I don't recall receiving any royalty checks. <laughs> you don't? Well, I also don't think that they used it because they wouldn't do that. And yeah. Not, yeah. They also probably wouldn't want to touch anything I'd ever touched because they'd be tainted with it. Ah, get oh, off me. Oh, yeah. I don't want to touch a dirty, bloody murder. Well, shit. yeah, the Tara Taint. Yeah, the Tara Taint. It's as stinky as her aftershave. That was the name of your fourth album, the Tara Taint. Yeah, it's like I was at Brett's house once a couple mm. of years ago and he, and he had all his Lego in his plastic tub for his kids and it said on the side. And Legos? It said Legos. What the fuck, man? It uh, said Legos. And he said, that's my original container that I had my Legos in when I was a kid. And I said, what are you calling it Legos for? Who are you? Well, I thought I, you were my friend. <laughs> well, I think in <laughs> it's other countries. It's Lego. It's, you don't say sheeps. Well, in other countries they do say Legos more. Oh, well, I don't agree with it. I'm surprised we don't just call it like, well, actually, it's probably called like, you know, Legoliums and we just call them Lego. <laughs> it's like an Aussie ass way of referring to Lego. Uh, tunnel vision. Not a good that idea. That was in, it. Tunnel in, vision. Not a good idea in law enforcement. Not a good idea in a lot of things, but particularly not homicide investigations. No, Tara. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That goes against the Tara taint. <laughs> Everything does, Barney. Everything does. Does that tingle your Tara taint? <laughs> Not as much as case files. Or Legos. Or Legos. Showin. Rhymes with knowing. Showin. You said shown. Yeah, you know what? I actually have a problem at the moment because I've been criticised for that. Like my brain wants to get rid of it and it wants me to say now known and shown. But I'm trying to like pull it back because I feel like now that I've been podcasting, just because people tell me shit, if I just start having a weird chameleon voice, it's just going to be odd. No. So I'm trying really hard to actually keep saying no wind, show wind. <laughs> I, I want to keep doing the shit that pisses people off. I know. Or I else, who am you I? Should, you should keep the authentic Tara taint. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's tainted, baby. He's taking a crap, I think. Oh, great. The cat's come down to stink it up. You know what? Still not going to smell as much as your aftershave. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you think I'm making it up? The smell is coming from inside my head now. The smell is, smell is coming from off my fucking face. Yeah, I know. I bet you probably don't even notice it anymore. Oh, this no, is your I life can, now. Oh, no, I can smell it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a mistake. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> One night, Nikolai went to visit a man. He reckoned owed him a few... few. <laughs> 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 Is that the worst noise you've ever heard? <laughs> no, when you like pretend to make out with the microphone, that's oh, the worst noise I've ever heard. Oh, oh, no, I didn't no. say to do it. Oh, hey, baby. <laughs> I will go after If you keep making a bad kiss noise, I will go after you and your whole family. kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 